You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you, about five years ago, I was awoken by my wife and my, at that time, seven-year-old son because they heard something in the house, something kind of strange, and um, specifically in my office. So I get up, I grab my phone because apparently if there's a burglar in my house, I'm going to threaten to put his picture on Instagram if he doesn't leave. And, and also, FYI, I'm in the middle of this like cold sinus thing, so I'm not feeling that great. I walk into my office and I hear this scratching behind the bookcases. And my bookcases in my old house were kind of built into the wall. Now, the thing you got to understand about my old house is that that wall where the bookcases are on the other side of it was the kitchen. And the people that uh, owned it before us, they redid the whole kitchen. And what they didn't want to do was they put in a hood. And so instead of having that pipe that goes straight up, they wanted it to be kind of these clean lines. You couldn't see it. So they put in a flex pipe. So what happens is, is that they, they put in the, the hood and then the flex pipe went into the wall. But into the wall means it was into the office, which is the, the, the shelves. So if you walk into my office and you look in the top, you could see this flex pipe at the top. So I just kind of covered it up with all the books that I had. So anyway, I hear the kind of scratching up in the top. So I take the books down and then um, my wife thinks that it's a bird that's gotten into our house, which shouldn't surprised me because my kids are always leaving the door open. That's why when, as sad of a day as it is when my kids move out, the gift that I'm going to give them when they move into their house is every time I go to their house, I'm going to leave the door open. (laughs) So it's just going to be like, hello. And that's just every time. So anyway, now I take the books off the top shelf. I don't see anything. That's when I hear the scratching again. It's inside the flex pipe. And I'm like, oh, so what I did was I had this broom, so I just hit the flex pipe with a broom, and then the scratching stopped. So I think it must have, I must have knocked out whatever's there, or it just flew away, or whatever. So I get ready to leave for church, and then I look at the pipe when I'm about to leave, and I see that there's a hole in it, and I'm, and I'm like, man, I hit the pipe with the broom, and I, I made a hole. So I tell Carrie, I'm like, look, on my way home, I'll stop at Home Depot, and I'll buy that aluminum tape that they have so I can cover it up. So I head to church, and I park here. And then as I'm walking in the door, my wife calls me and says, Bob, you didn't make a hole in the pipe. It was a rat and it's loose in our house. And so I'm like, okay, so I'll be back. Uh, I'll, I'll be home. So I hang up, I get home about 10 minutes later. And my wife says that the rat is now in my four-year-old daughter Livy's bedroom. So I grab the aforementioned broom I grab a storage bin because my goal is to scoop it into the storage bin. I live at the end of this, at the end of my development, so I was just going to toss it over the wall. Uh, because, and that's what's great about living at the end of the development. You just toss it over the wall, and then it becomes the HOA's problem. And so that's why you pay the fee for them to deal with problems you don't want to deal with. So anyway, so I go to Livy's room, and I close the door behind me. My son Xander uh, is with me as well. He's, he's holding the, the storage bin And then, uh, now the other thing is, is that my daughter's room is a mess. So I am trying to find this rat in her room and I'm literally sweeping toys and clothes off the floor 
and, and I say through the door, I'm like, you know, this would be a lot easier to clean or it'd be easier to catch this rat if this room was clean. And she says, maybe I'd clean it if you were a little nicer. And so I'm like, I hear some rage in that. Anyway, we're going to deal with that. And uh, so then I see the rat. It's actually in Livy's closet. So then I, I try to get it out and it goes behind Livy's dresser. So I move the dresser. Then it runs from the dresser, goes behind her bed. I push the bed out of the way. Now everything is all moved. Then it tries to run across the room to make an egg, a quick exit. And now here's something you have to know about me. I have the reflexes of a cheetah. So you need to know that. I'm, I have incredibly quick. So this thing tries to, to run across the room and I, boom, I whack it with the broom. And then it tries to keep going again. I hit it again, and it was, it was one time too many. And then it went to rat heaven, which I'm pretty sure is the magic kingdom. And so then I put it in the storage bin. I go outside. I throw it over the wall because I paid my HOA that month so they can deal with it. And so, or an animal out there can deal with it. And then my four-year-old daughter, Livy, goes into the room, and she says, Mommy! The rat moved all my furniture and messed up everything. Now, here, <laughs> the, there's this fascinating part that I, I, I'm like, Livy, how did you think that a rat could move something a hundred times its size? But that's not even really the point. But it, it is funny that there was just this assumption that something walking in could rearrange and turn everything upside down. And if you think about it, and this is the thing that is supposed to happen is that when a person comes to know Jesus, Jesus enters the proverbial room and everything really is supposed to change. Everything's supposed to be different. Now, some of the things when Jesus comes into your life, he's gonna change with your involvement. And then there's other things that amazingly, he'll just change instantly in your life. But even people who don't walk with God and don't believe Christianity understand this truth, that coming to know Jesus should change you. Now, we're in the seventh message of a series that we've been calling Old School, and we've been working our way through this book, little book in the New Testament called 1 Timothy. Now, uh, to give you a little bit of background, if you haven't been here or you were here and you forgot or you were sleeping, whatever the deal is, we're going to give you a little background, and that is that Timothy was the Apostle Paul's protege, his son in the faith. And Paul sends Timothy to pastor this church in the city of Ephesus. And you're like, where's Ephesus? It's in modern-day Turkey there in, in the Middle East. And Ephesus at the time was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, the largest, of course, being the city of Rome. And this was an incredibly diverse city. It was a diverse city socially. It was a diverse city ethnically. And it was a very diverse city religiously. Now, while the culture was very confused and constantly changing about what was true, right, and good. Paul's message is pretty old school, and that's why we call it that, that he was sharing these simple, unchanging truths that are like latitude and longitude in our lives. We can chart the course of our lives by them. And so what Paul is going to encourage Timothy to do throughout this book is to fight the good fight, because as Christians, we don't fight like everybody else fights. Other people can sling mud, other people can get personal, and other people can make anyone who doesn't agree with them their enemy. But my friends, that is not the Jesus way. Well, here's what we do as Christians. As Christians, we love people that we disagree with. We stand for what's true and show them it's right by how we live and the way in which we answer. And that is, we're supposed to care for people because Jesus cared for people. 
And that's at the heart of what we're going to talk about in our time together, because the issue that sometimes people, get, people who aren't Christians get frustrated with us, because as Christians, we can get this erroneous idea that my faith is my faith, and that doesn't have to impact how I do business. It doesn't have to impact how I handle my money. It doesn't have to impact how I work. It doesn't have to impact my relationships or how I treat people. And listen, this is why the unbelieving world calls us out on it and says that we're fake. Because following Jesus should change everything about you. It should change how you think. It should change how you speak. It should change how you live. And as we get closer to the end of this amazing small letter, Paul's going to point out three particular areas in which us coming to Jesus, it should radically change us in in really these things that we do constantly and and regularly. We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's what we read. He says, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Three things we're going to look at. If you're a note taker, here's the first one. That is that my relationship with God should impact my work. Now, the context here is work, but because of the way it's framed in the first century, there's another issue we need to deal with, and and that is talking about uh, the issue of slavery in the Bible and then about work in general. Now, slavery in the first century Roman Empire was a reality. But here's one of the things that we do erroneously at times is that we will hear a word used in antiquity and what we will do is we will take the modern definition of it, we'll put it in its modern context and say, well, that's what that means because of what it means today. And and that's just not, no, the way that we recognize things that are talked about in the first century is by understanding it in its modern, or in its original context. And so, because what we tend to do when we think of slavery, we think, well, that means people owning other people. We think it's connected to race because of the history of our country. And and that, that view is wrong on all counts. That's not what the Bible is teaching. In the Roman Empire, just to put it in context, there were upwards of 60 million slaves. In fact, one third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And all races of people in the Roman Empire had slaves, and all races of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. But here's the thing you need to know about Roman slavery, and it was very different than what we experience in the history of our country. And that most people in the Roman Empire voluntarily became slaves because of the financial security, and most of them were freed by age 30. One of the biggest reasons that people became slaves in the ancient world is because that was the quickest route to become a Roman citizen. And when you became a Roman citizen, that's when you could bring to bear the entire Roman government on your situation, and their social status was completely changed. Now, I know this is totally different than how we understand slavery to be in our uh, current cultural context, but it's important for us to understand what Paul is talking about in this context because one of the the people who criticize the bible will say well the bible condones slavery no the bible is is accepting that slavery was a reality in that world in fact what paul would also say is is that when a person comes to know jesus there's no difference between a person who's slave and, and a person who's free that we're all equal in christ 
He would also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you were with us a few months ago when we talked about that, that if, he says if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, then you should do it because you can leverage that for gospel purposes. But the other thing that's important for us to know, and I want you to listen to me very carefully because there's tons of opportunity for misunderstanding. So listen to what I'm saying is that we live in a culture right now where our perception on social issues matters more. The perception of it matters more than the actuality of it. Here's what I mean is that I say perception because there's companies that, you know, lab 18 months ago when people were putting up black squares on Instagram and speaking out on social issues. And they were talking about the, the, all these companies were coming out saying, we have to speak out against injustice and talk about, you know, whatever. And, and, and here's the thing that happened. And then these same companies that started making donations to organizations and whatnot, and, and they talked about speaking out or whatever. Listen, these same companies are doing business in the Middle East where slavery is still legal. And, and we just, we didn't see the blatant hypocrisy of it. These, they're doing businesses in countries where someone says that they're gay and they get killed, but they're posting a rainbow flag during pride month. And, and uh, I mean, but it, it, they're, they're, they're doing business in countries that practice genital mutilation on women, but they posted a black square, they posted a rainbow, so they must be uh, with us on, on, on the cause. Let me tell you something. These people don't care about your cause. They care about selling cars or selling sneakers, and if a small donation to an organization will make you happy and, and you'll still support them, listen, then they're going to do it, and they will still support these violent, oppressive regimes that are making them a ton of money. Now, here's why I tell you that. I tell you that because there's people who say, well, I'm not going to become a Christian because, man, I just can't believe that you would support, uh, that the Bible would condone slavery. Once again, when we understand it, 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 what the scriptures are teaching in its context, we realize the Bible isn't condoning slavery. It's recognizing that slavery was a reality in the first century world. But what, it's also what we also have to recognize is if you're saying a misunderstanding is why you're not becoming a Christian. Then how about, then, then, but tell me this, you're still doing businesses with companies that are profiting from slavery right now in 2021. So once again, I'm sorry, but that argument just doesn't float with me. And I think it's important for us to understand that as we have conversations with people that don't believe the Bible and don't believe in Christianity to say, listen, if you're saying that's the case, let me explain to you what the Bible actually says. But also you've got to come to understanding who you're doing business with, and why, because I don't think they land where you want them to land. Now, the point that Paul is making is not necessarily all of that. I think we need to talk about that because of the, the cultural moment in which we're living. But the issue that Paul is dealing with is that, in this case, people who were slaves had an employer. People who were employer had people who were working for them. And there is a way that people need to live because, and this is the context that Paul's dealing with. You're going to have to get up in the morning and go to work. How do you live your life in the context of that? If you're a slave, he says, or in our case, we would say, if you're an employee, that is, you're someone that works for someone else, do good work so that people don't disparage Christianity because of our work ethic. And listen, Christians should be the hardest working people in the room because we understand something that we don't ultimately work for our boss. We work for God. And why is that important? Because if Jesus has changed your life, then he should change our work ethic as well. Now, I became a Christian at the age of 19. And when I was in high school, 
I got a job. One of my first jobs was at this new company that was starting. Now, this was 1989, but at this new company that was starting that was called Target. And, uh, and so, and, I, and I, I had been working somewhere else, and I left where I was working to go work at Target because they were paying killer money. In 1989, they were paying all their stock boys $4.44 an hour. I was like, dude, I don't even know what I'm going to do with that much money. And so I, um, so I started working at Target. But after a while, uh, I quit. Uh, well, let me not quit in the traditional sense where I went to my boss and said, hey, I will no longer be working here. Uh, I just stopped showing up to work. And so now, and this is back in a time, if you're old enough, you remember this, that now public or Target employees, they wear the red polo shirt. But back then, by the way, you want to freak people out? Wear a red polo shirt to Target and not be working there. I do that sometimes, and I just help people. Because I used to work there when I was a kid. So I'm like, oh, that's down, that's down this way. And then, uh, and then they're like, you know, then they say, hey, man, you don't like it? Call my boss. And uh, so anyway, but back then, you didn't wear, you could wear whatever you wanted, but uh, you had to wear this red vest. By the way, the polo shirt, way cooler. So we had to, you had to wear this red vest. And so because I just stopped going to work, I just left. I still had the vest in my closet. So I get home from school, and I'm sitting in my room watching television, and my mom comes in, and she's like, she's like, Robert, why did you quit Target? That seemed like a good job for you. That's a good after-school job. You should go back. And I don't know what got into me that day, but I was like, you know what? She's right. So I grabbed my red vest. I put it on. I hopped on this little scooter that I had, and I drove down to the Target that was down the street from my house. Now, I'm assuming my mom thought that I was going to talk to the manager and get my job back. But I just felt like these conversations were totally unnecessary. So I walked up to the, 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 the machine that you put your number in, and, then, and I just put my number in, and it clocked me in. So I walked to the back of the store, and they had just gotten a truck, and they were, get, they were getting ready. So I just get on the line. I start moving boxes off the truck, opening them up, putting them on a cart. It's going to go out. And so, and as I'm doing all of that, my boss walks by. And he says, Frank was, didn't you quit? And I said, yeah, but I'm back. And he said, okay. And that's how I got my job back at Target until I quit a couple of weeks later. And so now... I had had, uh, and I, my kids love when I, they're like, tell us another story about some other weird job you had. Because I had like probably two dozen jobs before I turned 18. And uh, I was a total disaster. But then I became a Christian at 19. And I got a job working at this company that manufactured home accessories uh, called Clay, Metal, and Stone. Or as we who worked there called it, Crazed, Mental, and Stoned. And so... Now, most of my coworkers weren't Christians. There was only one other Christian in the company, and he was a friend of mine. We're still great friends to this day, and, uh, but he's the one who got me the job. And so now, but we were the only two Christians, man, and they watched us like a hawk. And they, react, they would watch to see how we reacted to anything. They would tell a joke and then look to see if I'd laugh. They would find, there'd be a circumstance, and they'd look to see, like, how am I going to deal with it? There'd be a change in the company. They'd, How's he going to deal with it? And so then I remember even the owners of the company would come in and ask me theological questions. Like, hey, you know, you're getting a theology degree, so let me ask you this. And now one, the, the main owner, uh, his name was Bob. Uh, and so they called me, because I was, you know, 20 or 21, uh, they called me Young Bob, which kind of hurts me now because I'm the same age as, 
that my boss was when I started working there, and so they called him Old Bob, which I just think is very rude. But anyway, so I was young Bob, and when he wasn't around, he was Old Bob. And so I started out on this low-level, I was doing like office clerical stuff, filing, whatever, and the person that I had replaced, it took them 40 hours to do this job, and I started working there. Once I got trained up, I mean, I was doing it in half the time. So after being there for a couple of months, I, I, I went to my boss. I went to um, old Bob, and, um, and I said, uh, Bobby, are you okay with me doing some sales calls when I get done with my work? And he's like, yeah, of course. And, so, and, and he's like, who are you going to call? I'm like, I just want to call customers that are outside of all the sales reps' regions that just haven't ordered in a while. And so that's what I started doing. I'd get my work done. And listen, within two months, I had increased my income by 50% simply because I'd created this position for myself of this guy that does clerical uh, work. I basically became like the junk drawer for anything anybody didn't want to do. But then when I got done with all of that, I just started making sales calls. And this was like, the listen, these people were already customers. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, I'd be like, hey, I'm calling from uh, Clay, Metal, and Stone. Did you say Craze, Mental, and Stone? Yeah, I did. (laughs) Although if I said Craze, Mental, and Stone, they think I'd be selling something else. And so... I'm like, hey, you have our new catalog? No, let me send it to you. I'd call him back a week later, and uh, my boss was thrilled. Then others in the office heard about what I was doing. They started infringing on my territory, which I did not like one bit. But then I formed an alliance with all these people, and we started splitting the commissions, and it started going even better because now we had three or four people working sales in the office. And listen, and this was great because I was getting a degree that I was paying for myself, and I was getting married, which and we were getting our first apartment and all that, and I needed that too. Because I know the song says you can live on love, but FPL, they only take cash or check. So, so anyway, but I remember this so vividly. I had been there for a little over a year, and my desk was just outside of old Bob's office. And he was laying into somebody hard. I mean, he was yelling because I could hear it through the wall. And then in the course of him yelling at them over what they were doing. He's like, why can't you be more like young Bob? (laughs) I'd never heard that before. And uh, man, it was the best feeling in the world. Not only because it was someone else getting yelled at and not me, but it was, was, but like my work ethic was getting noticed. And then um, after that meeting, he comes out and he's like, and he says to, to me and my friend, Bill, and he says, young Bob, Bill, is there anybody else in your church that's looking for a job? I've hired two Christians, and both of them have been great. And listen, this is, this is really the point. Listen, your work matters. And those people who aren't Christians, they're watching you. And, and listen, it's not that your work ethic is going to lead them to Jesus, but a bad work ethic will lead them away from Jesus because they're expecting something that your relationship with God is transforming the way that you work. And the reality is, and you might say, yeah, but they hold me to a higher standard than they hold themselves. Yes, that's true. And I'm not saying it's fair, but it is reality that people are watching you. And Paul says that your work should not discourage people from following Jesus. And in verse two, he says this, he says, and if you have a boss who is a Christian, don't take advantage of that. In fact, honor the fact that he's your brother by serving well. And the bottom line is, is that people should just be able to look at your work and by that alone, see that there's something different about your work. There's something different about you and that honors God. Look what he says in verse three, he goes on. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, 
and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, pause there and give me your attention if you would. If my relationship with God should impact my work, then the second thing it should do is influence my words. Now, if you aren't aware of this, you need to know that the chapter and verse divisions weren't in the original text. So, uh, and this is true Old Testament and New Testament, there, it wasn't like the Apostle Paul started writing that he's like, Dear Timothy, oh, that's verse 1. Like, that's not the way it worked. In fact, the chapter and verse divisions weren't added until the 13th century, and the reason it was added was to make us, uh, give us some common addresses so that we could find the passages easy. So if we say, oh, well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, we all know what that sentence says and we can find it quickly. That's why the New Testament writers didn't say, you know, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, it just said, you know, rightly did Isaiah prophesy or rightly Moses said, because they know that it's in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's in the uh, writings of of Moses, but it doesn't say, you know, in Hosea chapter 13, because that didn't exist yet. Now, I love the chapter and verse divisions because they give us speed by which to reference things, but they can also disorient us sometimes. And here's what I mean by that, is that sometimes we will read a chapter and we'll think when the chapter is over, the thought is done, and then he's moving on to something else. But the, cha- the reality is, is that they are splitting the chapter just to make it easy so one chapter isn't like 100 verses. But uh, this conversation, what we're talking about here, that conversation started in chapter 5, verse 1. We ended chapter 5 because we ran out of time. But the reality is, is that Paul is having this conversation with Timothy on how you treat other people. He says to Timothy at chapter 5, verse 1, here's how you treat older men and younger men. Here's how you treat older women and younger women. Here's how you treat those who are widows and have been left destitute. Here's how leaders are to be treated. And then in chapter six, he's like, if you're an employer, this is how you should act. If you're an employee, this is how you should act. Now, Paul, his crescendo of this topic is to warn Timothy about those who would teach otherwise or teach the opposite of this. And he says that there are those who do not consent to wholesome, or literally that could be translated to healthy words. And I think that is a very good description of problematic people. They're unhealthy. And this is how you can tell if someone is healthy or not by the words in which they speak. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus who said this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever words we're using, it's coming from the heart. Now, we can say that we're spiritually mature, that we're emotionally healthy, all we want. But the reality is, if you want to stick the proverbial uh, thermometer on our mouth to see how we're doing spiritually and emotionally and see if we're at 98.6, the the reality is, check out the words in which we're using. And and Paul says that these unhealthy or uh, those, those who use unhealthy words or unwholesome words, that they are people who are proud and yet know nothing. That even though they don't know anything, they simply want to argue. And these have to be, and you've experienced this, these have to be the most frustrating people in the world. That, but that's just what unhealthy people do. They bring emotional sickness into every conversation. And that's not an overstatement. In verse 4, uh, if you were with us, he says that they're proud knowing nothing, but are obsessed 
with disputes and arguments. That word obsess in the Greek language literally means this, that they have a diseased appetite. These are topics where, uh, well, let me say it this way. Um, There are topics where your opinion matters greatly because of your experience, because of your education, because of your expertise, there are, your opinion matters. And I tell my kids that, that there are, there are areas of life where my, my opinion weighs, it matters. But there are also areas of life where my opinion doesn't matter at all. And the problem is, is that we, we live in a world of social media where everybody thinks their opinion about everything matters. And it doesn't. Because your opinion really only matters about things that you have some level of expertise in. So if you're like, well, so the greatest value that we can add to some things, wisdom would say, you know what, the best thing you can do is just listen or stay out of the conversation completely because this isn't an area of expertise for you. Now, if somebody has questions about marriage, right? I feel like I might be a guy that could help. If you have questions about your hairstyle. I am not your guy. In fact, um, I'll tell you this. This is a couple of years ago. My, my son loves Legos, and he has loved Legos since he was about three years old. And so now he, he builds really complicated sets by himself. But early on, the way it worked, and if you're a dad, you know this, that the way it works when your kids are really young is that you're basically building the Legos, and they're watching you. Then you move to this other stage where you're, you're building and they're helping and then you get to this other stage where you're doing it together. Then there's the fourth stage where they're building and you're helping. And then the fifth stage is that you're building, uh, they're building and you're just watching. You're done, like they, they've got it. Well, when my son turned eight, I, built, I bought him a Lego set for his birthday and it was pretty complicated. So what I said was, I said, listen, Zan, here's what I'm gonna do. Let me get you started because the first bag of this looks pretty complicated. So let me get started on with this, and then the rest of it, you'll be fine. Now, another thing that we do at our house is that we glue our sets, because my kids, they play with stuff pretty hard, and I don't want to build these sets more than once. Like, you got my attention, we'll build it, and then I've moved on. So now, and the, what, in an interesting turn of events, where I got this idea from was when I watched the Lego movie, and the whole message of the Lego movie is to not glue the sets. But yet, that's where I got the idea to glue the set. So anyway, they messed up on that. So anyway, so I get home one day, and Xander has gone ahead and started on his own. And he, this, things are not going well when I come in. And I'm like, dude. And so there, he's got Gorilla Glue all over his hands. And a couple of his fingers are stuck together. He's got Gorilla Glue on the table. And mom's not happy about that. Um, and, and so he's got Gorilla Glue all over the Lego set. And he got a glob of Gorilla Glue in his hair. And so, so I walk in and I'm like, Zan, what in the world? Why didn't you wait for me? We could have done this together. And he's like, oh, dad, I just, I thought I could do it myself. But now I've got glue in my hair. And I know that would never happen to you. I don't know how these kids, they do something wrong, and yet they still figure out a way to troll me. I do not understand that. Now, here's the point. The point is, if you want to check your health, observe 
your words. Guys, let me give you a piece of advice. I'm going to talk to the guys here for a minute. And that is this. Um, your wife is not nearly as impressed with your sarcasm skills as you are. Now, I know that comes as a shock for you because you think you're like a black belt in sarcasm. But like she is not, she's not very excited about that. Now, you can talk to your friends that way and it really makes me question some of your friend choices. But I'm telling you, if you want your marriage to get like an easy 15% better, ju just like eliminate sarcasm and, and it's gonna, your marriage is gonna be even just immediately a lot better. And if you're already thinking of a sarcastic remark to say to me about that, you need Jesus. So, now, the point being, now, let me just say, Proverbs says this, and just, if you realize the power of our words, look, look at what Proverbs says. He says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Isn't it amazing to me, as, and Solomon is so right in Proverbs, that the same words, listen, the same effort that it takes to speak words that can literally pierce and destroy, the right words can heal. They can heal people. They can heal relationships. They can change the course of someone's future. So just decide. I mean, literally, it is as simple as making a decision that you're not going to be a destroyer with your words. Instead, you're going to be a healer with your words that you decide you're going to speak life into people with your words. And you know where that begins? It begins at home. You know what I tell my son all the time? You know what I told, and I don't even think about it. I told my son, I walked into this room in this service. I saw him. I put my arm around him. I gave him a kiss on the side of his head. And I said, Xander, you're a good boy. And I tell him that all the time. And you know what he believes about himself? That he's a good boy. And I tell him that he's strong and that he's smart and that he's loved. And you know what he believes about himself is that he's strong and that he's smart and that he's loved. And I tell my daughter Livy on a daily basis that she's beautiful, funny, and wise. And you know what she believes about herself now? If you say that a million times, is that she believes that she's beautiful, funny, and wise. And I tell Mia that she's beautiful, she's talented, and she's creative. And you know, you say that a million times, and you know, she starts to believe about herself that she's beautiful, talented, and creative. And I remember, like, we started this real young. And if you didn't, that's okay. You're just going to have to say it like over and over and over again to your kids. But I remember when Mia was like four years old, uh, I, I, I said to her, I'm like, Mia, you are beautiful. And she's like, yeah, I know. And uh, okay, don't get cocky. Uh, next lesson is humility. And, uh, but the reason why she said that was because she had heard that so many times in her life, she started believing it about herself. So listen, the thing that you want your kids to become, speak it to them. And listen, you know, like, and you got to say that even to your spouse. And, I, I, you know, don't be the husband that said to his wife, I told you I loved you once. If anything changes, I'll let you know. You know, you don't want to be that guy, right? It's why, because it's foolish. Listen, words matter and have power in our lives. That's why he says, listen, they can pierce like a sword. They can destroy or they can build people up because the power is nuclear. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, then he should be transforming our words as well and how we use them. All right, last thing and then we're done. Verse six, he says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If you pause there and give me your attention. Last thing. If my relationship with God should impact my work and influence my words, then certainly it should instruct my wants as well. You see, contentment is not a word that gets used a lot in our culture. And the reason is, is because contentment goes against everything that our culture teaches. Uh, Now, when was the last time you saw a commercial that said, hey man, your current phone is just fine. You don't need to upgrade. It's all good with what you've got. Like, you've never heard that commercial. Instead, it's just the opposite. The goal of all of these ads is to create... uh, this dissatisfaction with what we have so that we desire the thing that we don't have. And by the way, one of the things that's important for us to note, and we, so we start to, we hear something like this and we say, so the goal here is to never desire anything. Wrong. Desire is a very natural thing. Some people think that the elimination desire is the road to godliness. That is not Christianity, that's Buddhism. If you believe that, you're in the wrong building. So, but... Contentment doesn't mean you don't want more. So if you say, well, I have one child, but you know, we really want a big family. So that's not saying, I can't believe you don't love your child. I can't believe you're not grateful for the child. No, of course, of course you're grateful for the gift that God has given you in that child. But what you're hoping is the dream is maybe that you want to have several children or more than one. And so nothing wrong with saying, oh, I want a big family. Contentment is about having gratitude for that which I currently have. And this is the issue in our culture, is that if I don't have gratitude for what I currently have, it leads to coveting. And listen, coveting is an unhealthy desire for what I don't have. Now, this is so important that God put it in his top 10. As far as like you want to live well, this is, this is on the list. In fact, in the book of Exodus, this is where you'll find the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You see everything that's covered in this one little verse? You see, what he's saying is, don't have this unhealthy desire for your neighbor's life. No, that's not the real issue. Once again, the real issue is this lack of contentment leads to coveting, and coveting is usually the beginning of poor choices and bad consequences. Because the reason we lack contentment, if we're being honest, is that somehow we believe that God is holding out on us. And rather than having gratitude for what we do have, we have this desire for the thing that we don't have. Now, uh, my oldest two, me and Xander, they took swimming lessons early on and uh, really early. So they are just great swimmers, excellent swimmers. So one day we were swimming uh, in our pool and Xander challenged me to a two-lap race in, in our pool. And I immediately said yes, because I think it's important for kids to lose to their dad. And uh, now I know some dads are like, oh, no, I just let my kids win. Like, that, that ain't me. Now, you want to beat me, you got to earn it. So it's like my daughter, when my daughter Livy is six years old. She learned how to play chess. She got destroyed by me the first time she played. She, when she beats me, it will be because she earned it. My dad did the same thing to me. 
I didn't beat my dad in ping pong. This is how good he is as, a, well, I don't even know how you say this, a ping ponger? <laughs> ping pongist? Anyway, as a ping pong player? Oh, that even kind of has a bounce to it, doesn't it? Um, so anyway, my dad is so good at ping pong. I did not beat my dad in ping pong until I was 35 years old. And he was 70. <laughs> Just to give you an idea. That's how good... That's how good he was. In fact, I remember on my 30th birthday, uh, we were living in a townhouse in Pembroke Pines. And we had a part, my wife threw a party for me when I turned 30. And they had this rec center. And my dad's like, hey, let's go over to the rec center. So we all walk over. And in front of all my friends at my 30th birthday, we're like, oh, let's play ping pong. My dad not just destroyed me in ping pong, like embarrassed me. He would like he would serve it, hit me in the face with the ball. I mean, it's not just that I lost the point. It's that he just, it really, it was, it was, it was nasty. Like it was, it was personal. Like, you know, uh, anyway, so the point being, I finally beat him after he had been collecting social security for five years. And so, uh, but that's, that's how good he was. That's how good he was at ping pong. And now it's how good I am. And so I can defeat the elderly and the infirmed. And so, <laughs> so anyway, so back to the race. So before Xander and I raced, Mia and Xander raced. And Xander was winning, but he kept looking back to see where Mia was. And that's ultimately what caused him to lose. And I tell Xander, I'm like, you got to stop looking back. You cannot win looking backwards and looking at other people because everything you want in your life, this isn't just about swimming. Everything you want in your life is ahead of you. So I shouldn't have given him that advice. Because we got into, I get into the pool and we race, and that kid smoked me. Um, so I'm like, all right, let's 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 do let's do another one, and uh, and then it was like, let's just do whatever, let's do best of three. And then after he beat me the second time, and I'm like, hey, let's do best of five. That's you know that's what they do in baseball, uh, the divisional series. And then he beat me again. I'm like, all right, best of seven. This is going to decide it all. And then he beat me again. Anyway. I got to like best of 19, and I'm like, all right, you know what? Forget it. Then my wife got in the pool, and uh, I mean, she just destroyed all of us. Uh, she's such a good swimmer, because apparently she's part mermaid, um, which makes sense, because you can't be that pretty and be human. Um, so, well, thank you. And that is really not for me, but I'm going to receive it as for me. So it's really about her. But anyway, so I, I get, I lose all these races, and I get out of the, and I'm like, you know what? S- swimming races are dumb. I'm out of here. So who cares? So <laughs> now listen, but there's a point here, and here's what it is. This is so vital for your life. If we keep looking around to what other people have or what we don't have, it will kill us, and we will never get to the place we need to go. Right? That's why verse 9 gives us a warning. And listen, and I, and I get it, you know, um, especially in our culture that's, you know, all about the hustle and whatever. Um, verse 9 says this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You see, those who make it their goal to be rich no matter the cost, it never ends well. Instead, what happens is they fall into temptation and a snare. And then he says, and many harmful lusts. See, in our vernacular, we associate lust with misplaced sexual desire. But that's not how it's used. You could lust for anything. 
And in the Greek culture, that's what it means. The word for lust there is this Greek word, epithemia, which means this, an over-desire or desire that's out of control. Because there's nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. God created our appetites. God created our desires. But then sin comes into the world and begins to twist them. And when a desire gets out of control and it pushes us to make wealth the number one goal in our lives, it is a desire that is as powerful as lust and according to this verse, leads to shipwreck. And this is why the last verse is so famous and at the same time, so famously misquoted. In fact, I was listening to a podcast last night and they quoted this verse and they quoted it wrong. And it is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not that money is the root of all evil. Money is an inanimate object. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. What does it mean to love money? It's to make it your supreme desire, motive, and reason for living. And you know why this is important? Because you don't have to have money to love it. In fact, lots of poor people are in violation of this verse. Lots of middle class people are in violation of this verse. And lots of rich people are in violation of this verse. The belief that money is the thing that's going to solve all of my problems. They miss the lesson that Paul is giving us and that what also life has taught us as well. If you've lived for any length of time, then you know this to be true. The people who live like this, that money is the supreme thing, are deeply unhappy. And the people who have money and have given it supreme authority and have given, made it an idol in their lives have little to no joy. They have no idea who their friends are. And boy, if they have amassed any level of of resources and you know what happens they live with this constant fear that what they have will be taken away from them but then the question becomes and maybe you're thinking about but pastor bob weren't there rich people in the bible weren't there people that god blessed and and so how do we how do we deal with that if he's saying that the desire to be rich is bad but there's all kinds of rich people in the bible listen here's the issue the issue isn't being rich or not being rich. The issue is the love of it and the things that I'm willing to do for it. Because all these people in the Bible, you know what you realize is that these people were rich long before they had money. What do I mean by that? They were rich in the things of God. And see, following Jesus transformed every area of their lives, even their desires. And my friends, that's what communion does. Communion brings us back. It centers our lives on Jesus and draws us closer to him and causes us to examine ourselves. And listen, if there's an area of our lives where we feel like Jesus hasn't transformed or changed, then we got to let him into the room. we got to let him into the room and move some stuff around and change some things. And this becomes our moment to invite him to do so. And if we're struggling in an area of our lives, and this is the moment to open the door and let him walk into the room and let him start moving some stuff around so that we can draw close to him and invite him to change us. And guess what? If you're in a place where you are stuck, then this is your moment to open the door and invite him to come in and let him transform your life internally, externally. Draw close to him and invite him to change you. And this is what communion does. It reminds us of that. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. They're going to hand out the communion elements. And I'm going to invite you to hold on to the elements because we're going to partake of them together as Pastor George leads us. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of sin. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. Let's pray. And Lord, we want to thank you that you're doing a work. You're doing a work even when we don't see it, even when we don't recognize it. On the night in which you had communion with your disciples, you were getting ready to die for the sins of the world, and most of the world didn't even realize it. And certainly in this place right now, you want to do a transforming work, whether we're realizing it or not. But God, we want to be awake to it. Awake to your work, awake to your power that wants to transform us. And so we want to open the door and invite you to come in. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be different people because we know you, because we've been transformed by you, because we're followers of yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.